This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. Shag, I'm a small business person now. Uh, which means I have to learn a bit of sleazy sales tactics. So I think we might just start this episode out for an ad. I've been doing this for free for 220 <laughs> or so episodes. And I think the time has come for me to cash in. So I'm, I'm just going to come from the dome and you might help just, just, you might help me punch things up. Okay, Pete, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to give you some. Just pointers before you jump mm. into this. I'm like, finally. Well, well, well. Let me tell you my idea first. Okay, right? but before you do, before you do, okay. before you do, before you do. And I'm I'm so grateful to be a consultant on your mm. marketing for your small business. Mm. Uh, finally, you ask me. We're a horror exposure therapy podcast mm-hmm. in which I'm taking you on a journey. I guess a in, in many ways a overcoming trauma journey <laughs> yes yes for you to get over your fear of scary movies and actually get yes. to you to enjoy them and we, we've come so far in that journey to your point we've had 220 plus episodes of this yes. journey already right with that in mind mm. where your marketing is going to succeed is the people who are listening to this are listening to your journey like horror films probably or are interested in horror films and also are invested in our friendship as well. So if mm. you can frame your marketing for your small business within mm. those parameters, I think it'll be successful. All right, and go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever won? <laughs> I figure you always start with a rhetorical question, right? <laughs> Have you ever wondered... Uh, how you could pay me money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Peach here. Um, you might have been listening to Spooko <laughs> for a few years. And even though you tried to pay me and Shag by buying some merch, we redirected that money off to various charities and worthy causes. Well, you're in luck. Uh, because, like, you can pay money for, like, pre-recorded videos of me talking about the law, notwithstanding the fact there's very similar videos online for free. <laughs> Uh, so if you're interested paying me for something that on one view of the world you could take the benefit from and not pay me for, head to Law Assist Online or Google Law Assist Online and uh, and James Dapache, D-apostrophe-A-P-I-C-E. I'll get about 70% of the money you pay. So there we go. Shag, that's the ad. Uh, what's the kind of feedback? What have you got? What do, you, what do you got from there? Do you like the rhetorical question at the start? I did I like good ads have that. <laughs> a friend of mine and a friend of the pod, Ian Whitworth, who like ran a marketing agency for a while, <laughs> um, always said that all clients came in with like a brief that was like, customers love our product so much. <laughs> and we just need a campaign that's essentially just putting our product up on a platform and having like the sound of an angelic choir singing. And, you know, the clouds parting to reveal our product that everyone loves. Um, Shag, I, I feel like I need to be more earnest in my sales in future. So there was a big tongue-in-cheek element to that. Um, but I think it will have a lot of cut-through, if I'm using that term correctly, across all segments now that I'm in sales. Good for me. Peach, I think that was as good as most podcast ads I hear. Excellent. I, I like, like, and legitimately, I can't see that <laughs> performing worse than most podcast ads I hear. Um, well, like, the, the one I hear most often is like, do you like multitasking? Go subscribe to an audiobooks provider. <laughs> and I'm like, like it's like, like, we're already listening to a podcast. It's like, what are you selling? <laughs> it's like, it's selling, some, selling someone something in the middle of doing its direct competitor. 
like advertising for football while watching cricket or something. I'm like, okay, like what are we doing? Well, no, no. I mean, it, if I'm going to be totally serious, the thinking yeah. behind that is it's like in the same way that you probably would advertise football during the cricket is like, oh, if you like this sort of sport, you probably like other sports. So here's some more sports to look at. Ditto. It's like you like listening to things. Here's some more shit to listen to because <laughs> things run out. Didn't they also prove that multitasking, I'm pretty sure scientifically multitasking doesn't exist. You yes. just do each of the tasks slightly worse than if you were doing one and focusing your full attention on it. Yeah, it's just rapid fire monotasking where you're going, I'm doing this one task and now this task yeah. and now this task. Terrible. So the idea of sharing it on like a touchy-feely bullshit business podcast of the kind that I find myself listening to from time to time is bizarre. I mean, for real, like I don't understand how people have time to listen to podcasts. I don't know. Like, like thank you for listening. I don't know how you have time to listen to Spooko every week, but you do. And we're There's thankful for it. There's an underlying message, though, of like anti-mindfulness, don't you reckon? Of like, oh, I'm, like don't concentrate on going for a run or whatever. Like, listen to some other shit to distract you. <laughs> it's like- don't stare out the window while you're on the train. You've really got to just give yourself maximum stimulus. But sorry, I share that. Thank you, Shag. I shouldn't have interrupted. No, no, no. You're right. That is a really good point. And, you know, we haven't commented on hustle culture for a while, but <laughs> it's a massive part of hustle culture that's like, if you're going for a run in the morning, are you wasting it by not listening to business podcasts while you're running? Or it's like, if you're on a commute, are you just reading a book instead of upselling your customers new product. Do you know what I mean? Like that yep. it's so true. You're right. Like that anti-mindfulness is all connected to hustle culture. But look, I want to thank you for listening, finding the time to multitask and listen to this podcast. Mm. I, I think what Spooko has become and I, I think it's a peculiarly peculiarly peculiar peculiarly. Yeah, I think it's a peculiarly podcast trait is this creative endeavor we're on uh, and mm. you listening to it have become this community where yes. we can pretty much adapt and react and communicate with each other and create something together, which I think Spooko has become. Yes. And one of the coolest things about that is on our Insta, probably not on our TikTok because no one follows us on TikTok. <laughs> but on no, our- I haven't checked it in like <laughs> a month. <laughs> but, on our, but on our Insta, we can ask questions or you can like send us suggestions and we can then like sort of action those suggestions. And one of the things that's happened over the past couple of weeks is we found a direction for the year in that this yes. year is our sequels era. I can't yes. not be affected by the Taylor Swift concert that's in Australia at the moment. There are so many great sub subplots that emerge from that shag you would have caught the like u.s fans of taylor swift being like where are all the parking lots around the stadium <laughs> for taylor swift have you seen this, yeah, this sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. mimetic exchange of like an american person will see a bird's eye view of an australian stadium and there'll be trees and there'll be like you know a river and there'll be rail connections and there'll be buildings and there's just these reams of comments from american swifties being like uh, where the fuck do you park like every like the largest cars in the world? Because <laughs> there's no real like tail tailgate culture um, in Australia, and so eras forever. Shag, we're in our eras era. I'm about it. But we're in our sequel era this year. Yes. I think you know, for the foreseeable future in 2024, I want to be covering mm. sequels, and I got yes. really excited about that idea because oh, is that sorry? Is that right? We're just doing sequels. Oh yeah, Peach. I'm dropping go. this. I'm dropping this on you right now because. I think I was feeling a bit of like spooko ennui at the start of this year. Okay. We'd come off the back of some amazing guest stars, some yep. amazing moments. We're almost debuting the Nightmare Method, you know, next mm. month. And so- We're cashing in. So like, like we've sold out now that I've done that ad at the start. You've, you've sold out now. So I was just a bit like, I was a little bit like, you know, what do we do this year mm. to make sure that spooko has direction and doesn't mm. fall off, Right. And mm. it never will fall off. Yeah, that's a mm. callback to last episode. <laughs> but, 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 but once we started this, this thought about the Chucky sequels, which we're absolutely going to cover as a series later yes. in the year, I realized this year's all about sequels, or at least for the foreseeable future, because, you know, never say never, we're going to be covering sequels. And so, one of the things I did was uh, it, to go back to that point about the community, I was walking to work on a particularly muggy day. And to take my mind off the fact that I was already sweating profusely and I was going to have to not only deal with that on the train to work, but then when I got into the office and it's a newish place and (laughs) 
as, as much as I like to be like body positive and like mm. like accepting of myself and like what my body does, I don't love how much I sweat. Mm. And, and I kind of want to get a year or two into a workplace before they know that I'm like a super profusive sweater. So I, that was on my mind, right? And I was like, how do I take yeah. my mind off that? I'm going to think about Spooko. And I put a call out and I'm like, hey, we're in our sequels era. What sequels should we cover this year? And we got so many good replies mm. and so many awesome replies of films that I hadn't considered and films from series that we've dabbled in this pot. So it'll be awesome to revisit. But there was one film that I was surprised above all that got mentioned the most. Sure. So, so I reckon, honestly, almost everyone who replied and replied more than one film suggested this film. And a couple of people suggested only this film. And I was surprised because for a long time, I've thought this doesn't really count as horror. And I was thinking about it. And then I thought, no, like, you know, like at the end of the day, it's like someone needs to be the, someone needs to have veto power on a pod, but in a, in a community. But at the same time, mm. it's like, I want to listen to what people want to hear. So I was like, okay, well, why don't I go back and revisit this film? And in particular, I revisited the special edition of this film, which is different okay. to the original edition. And as I was watching it, I got maybe half an hour in, and I was like, oh, my God, this is absolutely a horror film. But not only that, not only that, this is a horror film from the 80s that is, in essence, an allegory for dealing with trauma which we yes. talk about as feeling like a very like naughty's phenomenon in horror, but actually it's been around for a while. And so there were so many, there were so many things buzzing in my head. I'm like, oh my God, this is perfect Spooko material. It's amazing. We've never done this, but the reason we're doing it finally is because of Feel Bad Club. So today, yes. Peach, finally, I can't believe we're doing this finally. I'm so excited. Today, Peach, and, and I'm just going to say we're doing the special edition of it because it is about 20 minutes different from the original. Today, Peach... We are doing the special edition of oh, Blade Runner of the 1986 horror science fiction action film Aliens. Yes. Now you freely admit to detonating the engines of and thereby destroying an M-class star freighter. Let's go. Move it out. We sat down there on company orders to get this thing, which destroyed my crew. A creature that gestates inside a living human host. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. Fuck Paul Reiser, I love you forever, yes. Kane, who went into that ship, said he saw thousands of eggs there. This can't be happening, man. This isn't happening. So who's laying these eggs? Oh my god. I feel like I want to throw a chair through a window. I'm like, <laughs> let's like let's go. Michael Bain. I've forgotten about Michael Bain or Michael Bainer or whatever his name is. Shag James Cameron. Oh, this is so exciting. I was gonna have a joke of like, have you ever listened to a podcast and one of the guys is a lawyer and he sells some shit online? You should fucking go buy <laughs> some of that. But I, I just got nowhere to go. Shag, aliens. I can't believe we're doing aliens. This is really exciting. It's, it's really cool, right? And I'm so glad so many people suggested it. And thank you. This is for you. There's a phenomenon that only happens in art, I think, and nowhere else in the natural world where a- Not business, something I'm acquainted <laughs> with now. A perfect piece of media, whether it's film, a song, mm. a game or whatever- the way I would define if something's five stars mm. is if it gets better every time you consume it. Shag, there was recently an ABC Four Corners interview with Brad Forgotten His Surname, the CEO of Woolworths. Which is a major supermarket chain here in Australia. 
Yeah, uh, you've seen that snippet that you might want to, yeah. you might consider dropping yeah. in here even. Yeah. Have you yeah. watched that more than five times? Is that is that better on the rewatch? Yeah, to explain, uh, there's mm. everywhere in the world, but, uh, you know, Australia is not immune to the cost of living crisis and mm. it, it feels like supermarkets are raising their prices not in line with the high rates of inflation, in fact, even more. And mm. so there's been a government inquiry, or at least there's there's been announced a government inquiry into supermarkets, and our national broadcaster, the ABC, did an, an investigative report on Woolworths, one of the chains, because it's essentially a duopoly mm. here. Like, yes, we have Aldi, but really it's Coles and Woolworths. Mm. And there was an interview with the CEO and he gets pissed off in this interview and walks out. It's the best. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I think I'm done, guys. Uh, you know, right, I, right, I do right, this with right. good intent. You know, I don't do this with bad intent. Uh, You're walking out, really? Somebody made a really good point, and I don't know why, but he's got a South African accent, and it makes it even better for some reason. <laughs> it makes him even more of a bad guy. I don't he know why. He left South Africa in the late 1980s. was like, mm, this Nelson Mandela guy has got some ideas that I, I think it's time for me to go. <laughs> Um, so it's, yeah, it's, and it's just the sheer fragility, Shag. Look, we'll get to another time. If you haven't seen it, go do yourself a favor. Aliens, Shag, let us go. A perfect piece of media. Song-wise, I could tell you so many. I could tell you. Yep. These are two in the same BPM. Mariah Carey's We Belong Together. Recently, and I truly believe this is a perfect song, Justin Mm. Bieber's Intentions, featuring the most perfect pop loop of all time. And it has... A beautiful chorus that weirdly I believe from Justin in which it sort of ends with, you know, shower you with all of my attention. Yeah, that's my only intention. It's like, it's just so nice. And just with this with this warm hug of a beat. I, every time I listen to that song, it gets better. And then when it comes to film, I can think of a few off the top of my head. My Cousin Vinny is a film that only I gets better. I still haven't seen it. I really want to see it. Yeah, I need to see it. It's it's it, it's a perfect film. Uh, Goodwill Hunting, Goodwill Hunting only gets better on every watch. And I'm going to add Aliens to this list. Yes, I've I've seen this film a number of times, but watching again, and in particular watching the special edition, it's kind of like, how did this get better? Like, how is this better than the last time I saw it? How is this better than the first time I saw it? This is a perfect film. And watching it again, rewatching it. After all these episodes of Spooko and the journey we've been on mm. and off the pod, both of our mental health journeys that we've been on, you know, in the mm. last couple of years. Mine just continues to improve. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of amazing to realize that this film is an amazing film about coming to terms with your trauma or coming to terms with what led to your trauma. Like, it's mind-blowing how deep this film can be but also be enjoyed on the surfacest level possible. And it also turns out that capitalism's the bad guy. Mm. And capitalism's the bad guy. And the not best. in a not in an annoying 2024 film way. Just oh, yeah, it's a- like, ha, 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 now I've made all the money in the world. <laughs> Whatever. It's just like it, it's a given that corporations don't have your best interests. I kind of love that in this film, that's an accepted fact. It's kind of amazing. Anyway, look, Peach, let's get into this. And like I said before, we are doing the special edition, which adds about 20 minutes of Mm. new details. I'm going to try to cut to those new details in this Wikipedia synopsis, which runs for six paragraphs, which cannot cover the perfection of this film. Could you sing the Mad About You theme song right now? Mad about you, baby. Oh, that's all I remember. Dum, 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 dum. Tell me why I love you like I do. But the premise of the show where they were a couple who were mad about each other. Is that kind of the whole premise of the show? I, Paul like, Reiser and Helen like Hunt, was, and they really liked each other? But I think there was like a really awkward undertone of like, could a Jewish person and a waspy white person oh, have a successful God. marriage? And it was like, ah. Oh, I'm pretty sure that's a fairly uncomfortable thing to ask. And and speaking of that, like often when we go back to old media, it's always like, well, they made a lot of gay jokes that I'm not cool with now. Mm. Like this film was so far ahead of its time that kind of in the same way that Talk To Me has a trans character that they never call out as trans because you don't have to, they can just exist in the world. Mm. The the way that they fuck with gender in this film is so forward-thinking, and it's kind of depressing how regressive the world's become post this film. It's not the most intersectional film, as I recall. I think one of our leading support players is in Brownface. 
for the film. Oh, what? Really? Yeah. Shall I just- I'll just make that accusation and Ooh. you want me to do a bit of a clicker clacking around? I didn't- th- <laughs> I, I, I wasn't aware of that. Sorry, I, I picked, didn't pick up on that. Uh, Vasquez is in brown face. Right, okay. Right, okay. And I quite like Vasquez as a character, but yeah, there you go. I didn't realize that. Well, look, I mean, yeah, so there you go. No, you, you can never quite go back to the past. It's, it's like you can't go back to an old film without coming back, like, scarred in some way. Well- with, Oh, no, you can't go back to an old film without ruining it in some way for you. I remember Mr. Lee Scarlet, one of our history teachers, says you can't judge one, like the value, you can't judge one time by the values of another, which seemed to me to be a very convenient way to gloss over colonialism entirely, <laughs> to be like- Oh, they just thought it was good. Like everyone in the past thought, thought, like all the white people in the past thought colonialism was great. And so you can't judge colonialism based on today's metric. I think it's funny how much the same people who say things like that Mm. are also the same people who will hero the change makers in history that saw things were wrong and tried to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how, how how do you square those two? Thoughts. You got to walk and chew gum, um, but it just strikes me as a failure to do that. All right, aliens, okay. Fuck, let's kill these. Oh, are we half on the alien side? Because we're the colonizers in this. No, not at all. Not scenario. at all. What okay. I, I I love about this film as well, watching it again, because mm. you remember all the kick-ass moments, the "get away from her, you bitch" sort of thing, mm. but you forget how truly terrifying the aliens are, and. I think that's such a good feat. Originally, obviously, from Ridley Scott and H.R. Geiger, but now James Cameron, Mm. who has taken something as hokey as aliens. Like, you know, when you think of aliens, you think of little green men, big eyes, flying saucers, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And turning it into an existentially terrifying force. But it's also not cosmic. It's also not beyond comprehension. It's so spacey. It's very immediate. And very tactile. And I think even though capitalism is the bad guy in this film, the aliens are very much bad guys too. They are terrifying. They mm. are unrelenting. And to that point about existentialism, you know, the, the, the tagline for the first film, in space, no one can hear you scream. I think what that does so well as a perfect piece of copywriting is mm. once you leave the bonds of Earth, once you leave our gravity, our breathable atmosphere, the, the people around you, the safety of community you sort of realize how alone we are, not just in the, the galaxy or the universe, but in existence. And you couple that isolation with a force that's essentially designed to kill you in the worst possible way and is almost unkillable and are unrelenting and are coming for you. It's a perfect recipe for horror. Like, that is that is truly the depths of despair we want from a feel-bad club film. And I think at moments, this film is absolutely feel-bad club. Let's get it. So the film begins 57 years after the first film. Ellen Ripley has been in stasis for 57 years aboard an escape shuttle after destroying her ship, the Nostromo, to escape an alien creature that slaughtered the rest of the crew. Nice. I also love that they're called xenomorphs. Uh, you know, I love yes. that there's no name for them. They're just, they're just a thing that exists. And the force of nature element's fun, like where it is interesting characterizing them as the bad guy. Like I, I think I understood them earlier to be almost a like cancer analog or like a sickness mm. analog of like yeah. it's just kind of it happens. Like yeah. and capitalism or unleash it unleash it on you or fail to protect you from it and it's just coming. It, it's terrifying in, the, in its inevitability. Mm. And I think what this film does really well is for the first half tries to give you as much hope as possible before tearing it all away. Yes. So she is rescued and debriefed by her employers at the Wayland yutani Corporation who are sceptical about her claim of alien eggs in a derelict ship on the exomoon LV-426, since it is now the site of a terraforming colony. So now, this is what's interesting. So in the special edition, we get to see elements of the terraforming colony before it gets overrun by aliens, which is really fucking sick. Now, I should also mention, before this happens, she finds out from Paul Reiser 
that her daughter, who she wanted to, she's like, is my daughter okay? Her daughter died two years earlier. Oh, man. Yeah, I think that's a, a wonderful, like, I mean, it's all, sorry, I don't think it's wonderful that that happened. So then we get to see an extended glimpse of what the colony was like beforehand. I'm reading this out from the Aliens Wiki. So in the theatrical version, the final close-up of Ripley in the inquest, blah, 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 blah. But in the special edition, there is instead a hard cut to the windswept surface of LV-426, where two substantial new scenes take place. The camera pans to reveal a sign reading Hadley's Hope, population 158. And beyond this, the colony comes into view. A tractor rolls past and through the main gate into the complex, after which we see several exterior shots of life of the colony, including vehicles moving around and people trying to cover equipment against the harsh winds. The scene then moves inside, where the operations centre is a hive of activity. Administrator Al Simpson is walking through the room and is joined by a man called Lydecker. As soon as they head into the corridor outside, Lydecker tells him about a prospecting team that he calls a mum and pop outfit. Yes. It's been dispatched to survey a specific sector of the moon on orders from Wayland Utani. The prospectors want to know if they will get salvage rights on anything they find as they are acting on company orders. Simpson responds that he never bothers to ask questions about the orders that come down from the company because it takes two weeks to get an answer out here and the answer is always don't ask. Great bit of world building. I was going to say this, like, I'd love to have this in my Aliens. This is gripping. It's weird that they cut this out. This is, like, maybe my favourite part of the film. Finally, he tells Lydecker that, as far as he is concerned, the prospectors have a claim to anything they find. Lydecker then has to deal with a group of children trespassing in the operations area, including a young child riding on the bike that we see the kid from The Shining ride... uh, through the walls uh, of the hotel as just a nice good. little callback to The Shining. Too good. But we also now go, oh, so there are kids on this colony that if we have any understanding of this film, we know are not going to last. Oh, God. Um, do, do, we, do we attribute this to James Cameron? He's like, I'm making a horror film. I want to give shout outs to my fave horror films. Or, or is this um, us? And when I say us, of course, I mean you and everyone in the Feel Bad Club looking on as sort of well-educated media consumers that, that, that we just sort of pick this up. Is there a narrative of James Cameron, you know, making tributes to old horror? There is so much literature about this film and yeah. you could spend days researching what was happening here. I'm sure you could find a, an interview from him or someone on set who would explain exactly what the purpose of that reference was in, you know, this deleted scene that didn't even make it to the original theatrical cut. And, and like, I, I can't speak to that because I haven't, you know, like, to mm. be honest, like, we've never been researcher, but it, it is clearly intentional. Yeah, nice. Um, and, you know, and I, and I think it's, there's definitely, a, there's definitely a thought in this film that, yes, it's an action film, but it has not forgotten that it's a horror film as well. Because the narrative about Alien, the Ridley Scott one, is that it's actually a haunted house film. And I've never really understood that because I'm like, well, like, <laughs> you know, it's okay to say there are similarities between this and a haunted house film. I don't scope it. Uh, but, but, but would you accept that, that sort of analysis, Shag, that the first one's a horror film and so, and so this is a horror sequel? Is that, is that kind of where, where you go as a film consumer? As a watcher of both, I like to be honest. I I think not to not to say that that people treated things differently back in the past, and we have to accept <laughs> that. But I don't know if you know the continuity of the series was that important. Like, yes, even briefly reading about how difficult it was to bring this to life. I think James Cameron wrote this on the back of writing Terminator, but had only directed Piranha Two before this. So when he asked to direct, it was an issue. And I think they eventually agreed, but then he created a treatment and the studio boss didn't like it, so it was shelved. And then that studio boss quit and another one came up and found it and was like, why didn't anyone jump on this? And then they tried to make it, but what they were asking was too much. And then the studio offered way less and so it was shelved again. And then they came up with the money and then they started filming it and 
they couldn't get HR Geiger to come back to do the designs because he was always contractually obliged to do the monsters in Poltergeist 2. So they had to get another guy in. And and also they were trying to create a sum of blockbusters. Like there's so many other yeah, factors yeah, in yeah, creating yeah. this film that weren't we're continuing the story of Alien. I wonder if this will be what we sort of learn about sequels as we go of like oh, a big a big challenge in creating the sequel is grappling with the legacy that it, that is already in place that you're that you're making that you're joining a line of work rather than sort of striking out on your own. I mean, I think the main reason for most sequels is a cartoon dollar sign in <laughs> some in like a studio exec's eyeballs. In I like think that's a, wolf, a wolf in a suit's <laughs> eyes going like, oh, nah. <laughs> That's literally the reason why any sequel is ever greenlit. But anyway, okay. So we get that amazing conversation in the, in the colony between like, I guess, the colony administrator and one of his underlings about this mum and pop outfit. God, I love that term. Going out to prospect this section of the planet that's been specifically asked for by Wayland Yutani. The scene then cuts to the prospector's tractor driving across the surface of LV-426, which is this dark, windswept wasteland. Inside are Russ and Anne Jordan with their children, Timmy and Newt. So they really Whoa. are a family outfit who are just like, they're just out here trying to make a buck in the universe, right? Mm. Timmy and Newt are young kids and they are very demure, very well behaved. And it soon becomes clear what they have been sent out to search for. Russ gets Anne's attention as the derelict ship from the original film appears out of the gloom. Russ suggests to his wife that they go inside and look around. When she asks if they should call the find-in first, he tells her, let's wait until we know what to call it in as. Yes. They pull up alongside and Russ and Anne head inside through a crack in the ship's hull to investigate, leaving Newt and Timmy in the tractor. Nice. Good parenting. This, this part is the part that really killed me, right? Like, you know this as a parent. I know this as a parent that your kids feeling of security is like the most important thing you have to foster for them. All of these other things that are said to Mm. be important, like fucking screen time, rules about this and that, like the schools they go to, whatever. No, like what they need is a feeling of security. They need to feel like home and their family and the world that you've brought them into is secure. And so watching these kids worry for their parents who have gone into an alien spaceship Uh, but hearing them have a conversation be like don't worry dad said it's all going to be okay and just seeing that oh god that does make me feel really bad see this is the moment where i was like oh it's a horror film time passes and night falls then Anne suddenly bursts back into the tractor and begins frantically calling for help on the radio can you imagine Uh, you are a young child between the ages of say five and ten how is this cut? This is like I'm through. I'm okay. Sorry, go. Yeah, can you yeah, imagine? I'm your, sorry. Your I'm, parents, I'm having that response right now. Your mom suddenly comes back frantic, and like you are not equipped to see your mother frantic. Your mother is a sense of you know security. So seeing your mom frantic, Newt then sees her father lying outside with a face hugger wrapped around his head, and she starts screaming. Oh my god. So we then cut back to the ship. Okay. After contact is lost with the colony, and we're also cutting back to the Wikipedia synopsis. Yes, okay. After contact is lost with the colony, Wayland yutani representative Carter Burke and Colonial Marine Lieutenant Gorman ask Ripley to accompany them to investigate. Still traumatized by her alien counter, she agrees on the condition that they exterminate the creatures. Ripley is introduced to the Colonial Marines on the spaceship Sulaco, but is distrustful of their android bishop because the android aboard the Nostromo betrayed its crews to protect the alien on company orders. Uh, That's, I mean, I do feel like that's very, very good sequel building. Like, I don't, like, enough people say enough nice things about James Cameron and there's one view of the world that the run from like Terminator, Aliens, Abyss, Terminator 2, Titanic is one of the greatest like runs of commercially successful creativity in human history. Um, 
But I just think that's really good. That's really neat of like being like, what can I pick up from? What can I tease out from this earlier film? It's just pretty good, Shag. Like I think it's easy to be cynical about, you know, big big creatives, but I just think that's very neat and impressive. I mean, there's so much gorgeous world building. Even having the time and the patience to show the Marines pack this dropship full of weapons. So we're feeling really secure as an audience. We're like, well, yeah, nice. yeah, like, you know, in Alien, she didn't really have any weapons, but now they've got rocket launchers and grenade launchers and machine guns and super crazy sentry guns. You know, like mm. these Marines are tough and they're brave and they're going to go down and we're going to like kick these aliens' asses, right? It gives you that feeling. There's also an amazing scene where Ripley is just sort of standing around feeling like, can she do something? And there's so much great dialogue in this film as well. Like, you know, when she mm. goes to the head of the Marines and she's like, can I do something? And he's like, I don't know, can you? And she's like, well, I can drive one of those loaders. And they have these like exosuits that are yellow. Foreshadowing, right, yes. Right, And they're essentially like an ex- like a robot version of a forklift. And we get to see her. We get a, you, we get a good minute of her piloting this thing and lifting crates onto this dropship just, to, just so we know that she's good at using this thing. But also for that amazing, like the calmness that they're doing and the security they're giving us. You spend an hour in this film, even in the theatrical cut, not seeing a single alien. Ugh. Except for a face hugger. But they don't really count because they're the sperm of the aliens, right? They're the tadpoles. <laughs> but they are. Oh, that's, that's a good point because they have like two, like, because then what's the eggs? So, so sorry. So, we say the eggs is unfertilized. The eggs, the so, or like the pod, the potty. You know what I mean. I'm, I mean, it's tricky, right? Because it's a sort of a cloaca situation where it's not. There's not a straight mammal version of sex organs that we can cut to. But yes, the egg births the face hugger. The yes. face hugger is the thing that impregnates the host. Yes, and then the alien is born from the host. And so, so where do we get more eggs from? Well, we're going to find out because in the original film, there's a famous scene that was cut that showed that sort of cocooned humans turned into eggs. But James Cameron decided he was going to have a different spin on this because it's like, okay, if we've got eggs, where do those eggs come from? And that's what is revealed maybe an hour and a half. James Cameron. Anyway. I'd previously said the Terminator 2 is probably the Zenith, but this is really good, Jake. This is like, uh, again, it's a perfect film. And I, I, I think ranking things is difficult. So I can't yes. be like, this is one of the best films of all time. But I can say it's a perfect film and other perfect films exist and this is one of them. Yes. So in that sense, I can say this and my cousin Villainy are compatriots. And Terminator 2. Are we, ter- are we, I've got to see Terminator it again. I've got to see it again. Okay. But, I mean, but the metric is, does it get better on repeat watches? And if it does, it's uh, perfect. Okay. Yes, yes, I'm with you. I hope Spooko gets better with repeat listens. I think, <laughs> I think maybe. Is there an episode, page that you think might get better on repeat listens? Episode 100, I don't know if it's just because it's a round number or just because it has the nice musical interlude in the middle or just because your choice of the collector and then the collection or whatever was just really spot on. But I was listening to it again this morning and I'm like, well, this is a pretty good podcast. <laughs> like- <laughs> okay. There's enough there for me to go back to. A dropship delivers the expedition to the surface of LV-426, where they find the battle-ravaged colony and two live alien facehuggers in containment tanks, but no bodies or colonists except for a traumatized young girl nicknamed Newt. So in the original version, this is the first time we see her. But in this Ah. version, we see... And what I think is so powerful about this is, this is a child who has had a sense of security taken from her. So she is almost feral. Like, and I I hope that's a term I can use, but she is living in vents. She is non-verbal, like to a point. Like she does speak with Ripley, but not as much as she would have before. Mm. She is dirty. She is rags and she's carrying this dirty doll, which is this like one remnant of her previous life. God. Yeah, okay. And it's like the watching it again, like Newt is just a horrifying character. And it immediately Ripley is like, I need to protect this person. What is also interesting, mm. and this is another diversion, but another perfect song 
is a mountain goat song from, and it, it's hard to remember its title because it's is it from, the I'm coming. No, that's home that is also. He's got a couple of perfect songs, but okay. There's an album where he based every song on a Bible lyric. Oh, sorry, on a Bible for oh, on a Bible phrase on a bible verse and so every song is titled like psalm 3 verse 3 or something right so it's like it's always hard to remember the names of the super annoying to yeah remember yeah super annoying like (laughs) (laughs) but there's a song where he documents the feeling of going back to a house where trauma occurred in your life it could have been a house where you experienced abuse could have been a house where just some bad things went down that mm. you haven't quite moved past or you can't move past because a lot of trauma you just have to learn to live with. And he sings this song, like the lyrics are so beautiful because he, he essentially like talks about the weird detached feeling, almost like an archaeologist or something that you would have moving through this space. The first verse ends with this beautiful lyric where it's like, I just want to see how the people here live now. Hope that they're better at it than I was. And then the final lyric is he leaves the house, goes home, goes and sits on his back porch, looks up at the stars, and he describes the stars as like teeth in the mouth of a shark. And I I thought about it while I was watching this because that's how Ripley is viewing this colony. Now, she was never on this colony. She was on the Nostromo. But Mm. the colony picked up the face hugger from this colony. Mm. And so she wanders through this colony with this detached sense of this is the site of where the most profound moment in my life was born. Of like, I've seen this, I've seen this before, like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. And, and it's kind of amazing. Like, the nuance on this performance. Again, Academy Awards mean nothing. She was nominated for an Academy Award. She didn't win, but it's kind of amazing she was even nominated for an award in this room. Mm. And so rightly deserving. It's phenomenal. Anyway, the team locates the colonists beneath the fusion-powered atmosphere processing station and heads to their location, descending into corridors covered in alien secretions. Fusion-powered atmosphere translation or whatever is, a, is like, look, I'm sure there's enough people around saying James Cameron's good. That just throws, like, that just deals with about a thousand questions in just one little mm. line of, like, oh, like, it answers what's terraforming. Like, how do they breathe there? Like, what's the plan? Like, how do they power it? It just, that's very impressive. It's kind of amazing, right? And, you know, we find out pretty quickly that they're terraforming this planet on the back of this generator that's essentially a live nuclear reactor. So it's also super volatile. And amazing. what's amazing about this moment, I don't know if it'll, it'll, come, it'll come up in this, is that they find the aliens because they use these trackers. There's, there's a wonderful uh, tension-building device in this film, which are these static trackers which can show movement moving towards you but Mm. it only shows you as a dot that goes beep 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 so you don't know what it is but you know movement's happening and they see this cluster of dots in this section so they're like they go down there but because it's essentially a fusion reactor they can't use their any of their weapons that have oh they're like hyper super guns yeah they can't use them they can't use their grenades they can't use their missiles they can only use flamethrowers at the station center the Marines find opened eggs and dead face huggers and then find cocoon colonists now serving as incubators for the creature's offspring on the wall. And yes. what I think is amazing about this and what I think makes it so horrific and disturbing is when the aliens get you, they, yeah, maybe they tear you apart. Maybe they, like, you know, get you with their claws and acid, but they don't kill you. They get you to a point where you're almost dead And then they leave you in a state of constant torture because what every single one of these colonists say when you get close to them is kill me. Uh, They're still alive. They can still breathe. They can still talk. And the only thing they can say is kill me. Oh, God. Is this a deleted scene? No, this is, this is in, this is in the original. Well, this, I mean, like it's a horror film. Like, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're an hour into the film and we've had this 
level of hope, this level of security. We haven't seen a single alien, but now we're starting to be like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. Maybe we're not as safe as we thought we were. And, and we've seen these, these Marines be like, hot, 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 hot. Yeah, don't worry, I'm going to shoot some guns. We're going to do this. Yeah, right? And now it's like- Like the subtlety of that storytelling of like how safe did we feel when we saw, oh, we've got an infinite number of missiles. Oh, we've got a thousand grenades. Great. That's easy. And like, oh, yeah, you can't use those. Yeah. Oh, okay. We'll still be fine. We've still got flamethrowers. So there's this one colonist that's like, kill me. They're like, we've got to rescue this woman. They go to, and then they realize she's starting to writhe in pain. And they're like, what the fuck? An infant alien bursts from her chest. She dies and they're like, we need to burn her alive. There's confusion. Several adult aliens come out of the woodwork now and ambush the Marines and kill or capture many of them. In the panic, they start like shooting just flamethrowers everywhere. No one knows what to do. When the inexperienced Gorman panics, Ripley assumes command, takes control of their armored personnel carrier, which is this awesome like tankish vehicle super low to the ground vehicle that comes out of the 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 drop ship drives towards where they are rams the nest to rescue corporal Dwayne hicks and private hudson and vasquez the rest of them are basically left to die or be captured hicks oh, orders the drop ship to recover the survivors but a stowaway alien on the drop ship kills the pilots and it crashes into the station oh, almost nice almost out of ammunition and resources the survivors barricade themselves inside the colony. Ugh. It's you perfect. Just, yep. It's perfect. It's perfect. And look, they've still got some weapons. It's not the exact same plot of the first, but we're now, we're now fending off not just one alien, but seemingly swarms of them. Ugh. Sequels, right? Are we going to learn that you just got to up the ante as well, up the stakes? Or like it was hard enough to kill one alien? Um. And then you go, oh, don't worry, we've got infinity guns and infinity soldiers. And it's like, no, no, we're just going to drip, 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 take all those away. What I think is funny about this, apparently the name for this film came from James Cameron writing on a whiteboard somewhere, alien, and then dollar and then a dollar sign next to it. Because, <laughs> you know, like sequels, maybe. And then it was like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Alien dollar sign. The dollar sign looks like a bit like a little S. Hang on. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Please Ripley discovers that Burke ordered the colonists to investigate the derelict spaceship containing the alien eggs, intending to profit by recovering them for biological weapon research. Before she can expose him, Bishop informs the group that the dropship crash damaged the power plant cooling system and the plant will soon overheat and explode, destroying the colony. He volunteers to travel to the colony transmitter and remotely pilot the Sulaco's remaining dropship to the surface. At this stage, do we know he's a robot? No, we do. We we know from the beginning because oh, this, that's right. Sorry, sorry. He's like and, because and, we and now realize Ripley gets to have a great line of like, yeah, I don't really trust robots. I'm not really about it. Yeah, yeah. and you, and you know what? You know what? More and more, there've been these films where characters have prejudice towards like robots or cyborgs, Ooh. and I never kind of believe it. I don't know if you've seen that film, The Creator, with Denzel Washington's son as the lead. He plays this character who like hates robots and he's really prejudiced against robots. And it's just, it's just not believable. Like, it's just weird how. Oh, because he's like, oh, fucking robots. <laughs> yeah, they right? don't even have real skin. <laughs> right? It's just like, it's not as insidious as real world racism or prejudice ever is. I feel like there's like decades of Japanese kids' cartoons that dealt with the real issue of like, is it racist to be mean to robots? Like, I feel like a lot of. The media we consumed as children involved characters being like, oh, robots are scum. They're second-class citizens. And they'd be like, no, no, be nice to the robots. Look, speaking of, you know, rules you have in your house and screen time, when Alexa used to be a thing, like we had Alexa for a while and the rule was you couldn't use Alexa unless you said please and thank you to Alexa. Like, <laughs> I really didn't like that vibe of like, fucking Alexa, just do this. I was like, no, no, like Alexa's helping us. You know, we've got to, we've got to ask her nicely. Well, I mean, you know, even that thing of like, why is Alexa a woman? You know, like there's, 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 there's so many that, yeah, there are so many little things you pick up on. But, but I think Ripley's prejudice or distrust of androids here is so well done. Again, her performance Ooh. is so nuanced that it's very believable that she would be distrustful of Hicks. But it turns out Burke, aka Paul Reiser, is the bad guy because he represents the corporation and the corporation kind of 
will allow any like you know everyone is collateral damage in their hunt for a biological weapon that they can then leverage to be a more powerful corporation capitalism baby let's go so there's there's a scene where they have repelled a lot of the aliens and they feel kind of secure in their barricaded space in the colony and ripley is just trying to look after new and there's there's kind of a heartbreaking scene where kind of similar to what I said before about that level of security. Newt's like those things are monsters, and Ripley's like yeah they are, and she's like so why do adults always tell kids the monsters aren't real? Nice. And it's just like it's just it's just so good. And then oh my god, the most heartbreaking moment is she's like I think you need some rest, Newt. You basically haven't slept since these aliens showed up because you've never been able to. So I know, I'm going to take you into the med bay. You're going to lie you on this bed. I'm going to essentially, you know, be quite maternal towards you, put a nice blanket over you, leave mm. you with your doll, let you sleep in this place of security. But then she comes back to find Newt and Newt's not in her bed and she's like, what the fuck? And then she looks under the bed and the only place oh. Newt feels safe is like hiding. And Newt is asleep under the bed without a blanket like you know, clinging to her doll. And so Ripley lies down next to her just to comfort her, just to, feel, just to be like, everything's okay, and falls asleep too. They wake up. Ripley wakes up first, and she notices that the two containment takes with the facehuggers have been pushed over and they're broken, and the facehuggers are nowhere to be seen. She realizes she's trapped with them, uh, and the doors to this medical facility are locked. And she's banging on the door, but no one's around and no one can see them. And she waves at the security camera, but then we cut to Burke who's looking at the security camera and just turns it off so no one else can see her screaming for help. Oh, God. They fight off the facehuggers and then Ripley realizes she can trigger a fire alarm to alert their Marines, so she does. The Marines show up, they break through with their guns, they capture the facehuggers and they kill them. And she accuses Burke of releasing the fake suggers to implant her and Newt with alien embryos, allowing him to smuggle them through Earth's quarantine. The power is suddenly cut. And she's like, they've cut the power. And they're like, what are you talking about? And you slowly realize in this film that even though the aliens are basically mindless killing machines, they're also not dumb. And they learn. Oh, God. Yeah, okay. And there's this amazing moment where they barricade the doors and they're waiting for them to come through this door and they've got all their guns pointed to it and they're watching on the scanners. They're like, there are so many aliens coming and they're like 20 metres away, 15 metres away, 10 metres away. And then it gets to a point where they're like seven metres away and someone's like, that would mean they're in the room. What are you talking about? They haven't come through the door yet. Your equipment's malfunctioning. And it's like, it's not malfunctioning. They're here somewhere. And then they realize that they must be coming through the roof. And there is a perfect scene. Like, it is it is your horror film iconic moment yes. where one of the soldiers peeks up through the roof, shines a light, and for maybe a second, we see so many aliens slowly advancing towards the camera. It is it's like thinking about it now. It's like horrifying. It's awful. And so they, everybody, and then chaos breaks out. Everybody's firing. Aliens are coming through the roof. They're coming through the floor. They're just trying to shoot the shit out of these aliens. In the ensuing firefight, the aliens kill Burke, subdue Hudson, and injure Hicks. The cornered Gorman and Vasquez sacrifice themselves to avoid capture. They manage to escape through the vents, but Newt is separated from Ripley and is taken by the creatures. Oh, God. There are so many good scenes here that I can't properly explain. But, I mean, that's Wikipedia, baby. So Ripley brings Hicks to Bishop in the second dropship, but she refuses to abandon Newt and arms herself with argument. Look, and look, we live in a country where I'm very glad we have very strict gun laws and mm. guns are just not something we ever see out in public. They're just not. They're just not a no. common there's not a common occurrence. Except on cops. Ooh, but funny. but but she still does the coolest thing in the world where she takes a machine gun and a flamethrower and duct takes them together to make a machine gun flamethrower hybrid gun. 
I must say, nine-year-old me to age like 11 or 12-year-old me, I would have been like, oh, sick. Stick it. Put as many guns onto one gun <laughs> as you can. <laughs> I still remember in Terminator 2 where uh, they go into the like the room of guns and they're like, we've got stacks of guns in here. And I was like, oh, <laughs> guns are cool. They are a cool thing. It is a weird thing because they are cool. It's like smoking, <laughs> right? Like, sm- like you can't like... Oh, smoking, I'm so glad. Like, Gen Z are not yep. smoking. I mean, they're vaping now, which sucks, but... It's cool. Yeah, smoking's really smoking cool. Smoking looks cool. Like, what yeah, can you do? Yeah, it looks really cool. <laughs> I blame French films in the 60s, but smoking looks cool. It's tough. Yep. Same thing with guns. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> Imagine smoking and guns. Wow. So, she decides to descend in the processing station when Newt has fallen to rescue her with this gun hybrid she's created. As she goes in, so so Wikipedia just says during their escape, they encounter the alien queen surrounded by dozens of eggs. But that doesn't really sum up how horrifying this scene is. So mm. she goes down into this space looking for Newt. She eventually hears Newt screaming and follows the sound. And what she comes across is Newt in a cocoon, but also hundreds of eggs. And it's like, but hang on, where do these eggs come from? And then we see this like fleshy tube depositing eggs on the ground. And the clever thing about this scene is to show the scale of it. We, we see the, the tube and then we, the camera follows the tube. So the camera starts at the, where the tube's going and plopping eggs onto the ground. And we follow this tube and it feels like we follow it for screen after screen after screen until we eventually discover this alien queen. And I remember in terms of talking about the design of this, they wanted it to be beautiful and horrifying like a Black Widow spider. And that's what this alien queen is. It's like it's connected to this giant disgusting larval tube, but it also has this magnificent crown that is obviously the the sign of her being the queen, these tiny little crazy pincer arms and legs. And it's just, it's, it's, it's beautiful and horrifying. It's exactly that. Yeah. Amazing. The queen is surrounded by all these eggs and there's this cool moment where the queen is kind of about to attack her, but then she points her gun at the eggs to be like, Uh, you attack me. I'm going to kill these eggs. And you see the queen relent, but you also see all these like aliens that have come through the walls relent and slowly move backwards to be like, it understands. It understands your threat. When one starts to advance, or at least when one, I think when one of the eggs starts to open, uh, Ripley just torches them all, just torches them all. The queen writhes in pain. Aliens start coming out the walls to attack her. She then uses her machine gun to shoot them all. Amazing. Pursued by the enraged queen, Ripley and Newt join Bishop and Hicks on the dropship and escape moments before the station explodes, consuming the colony in a nuclear blast. Aboard the Sulaco, all seems to be well. It's the false dawn, right? Ugh, yes. And they're talking with Hicks when all of a sudden this massive, I guess like knife-like protrusion erupts from Nix's from Hicks's like stomach. And in, in in this film, androids bleed, but they just bleed white goo. Yeah, and, like pus. Yeah. yeah. And this white goo goes everywhere and we realize that the alien queen stowed away in the dropship's landing gear. The queen tears Bishop in half. Sorry, yeah, sorry, not Hicks, Bishop. I mean Bishop. Mm. The Queen tears Bishop in half and advances on Newt but Ripley fights the creature with an exosuit cargo loader. It's that scene where she's like, yeah, get yeah. away from her, you bitch. And they have this fight and it's, it's evenly matched, right? She manages to knock it into the airlock where she's able to open the airlock. The alien sucked into space, but the damaged bishop keeps Newt safe and Ripley manages to hang on while they close the airlock. <sighs> Ripley, Newt, Hicks and Bishop enter hypersleep for their return to Earth. And that's the end of Aliens. Oh, so cathartic. And you don't quite kill your bad guy. You kind of immobilize and sort of, um, what's the word I'm after? Distract or um, divert your bad guy for a while. Shag, it's a horror film. 
it's a horror. There's a net injustice. Capitalism's the bad guy. Uh, we feel really bad. Uh, bad guy, yeah, bad guy didn't die. The ending's not a happy ending. <sighs> I think we've ticked all the boxes. It's our sequel era, sequel season this year, baby. Send us, I keep saying baby. I think I'm influenced by Alexei Toliopoulos in this episode. He's in the back of my head. You know, I'm in a very filmic frame of mind. But please, so he should be. send us your sequels. Tell us what you want us to cover this year. Uh, I'm so excited to just tackle them all. I'm so excited to see where we're going to go. You know, Jason's going to take on Freddy. Yes. The exorcist is going to, like, exercise more demons. Oh, yeah. Hey, can we do some Omen sequels? Can, oh. I, find, can I figure out what, what, what Damien gets up to? What the fuck's Damien up to? We're going to find out this year. It's sequel season. Have you ever listened to a horror film <laughs> podcast and also wondered how Section 232 and 233 of the Corporations Act interact? Have you ever been unfairly prejudiced? Uh, this was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up?